Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to American Physio Unfiltered. Dr. Matt Sonricker here on the mic. Dr. Sean Reister with us. Hello. On the keys, Dr. Adam Baker. Hey. And the newest member to the team, Dr. T. Day Tunat. Hey there. And there's been a lot going on in the last two weeks. Episode we 22. Right. And we are on a Friday night from the new studio. Feeling Do you remember, good. Do you remember when we did the first one? Episode one. Actually, I have no recollection of this one. <laughs> to be I, completely honest, I think you what have Peyton Manning jersey on. That's maybe mm-hmm. about it. Zika. I think the first one we actually just talked about what the uh, the 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 framework of the podcast would be. We yeah. didn't even have much of a story, and we we covered a little bit of managed care. That was it. Were we at the uh, Brook Edge? Where were we? Coventry. The Coventry, Coventry Studio. Yep. Well. We stayed true to our commitment for one week. And <laughs> we have what? Two. Yeah, two weeks. Two weeks. And what, mm. the, we have, we're doing one, and it's a, a Friday night one because we have uh, busy Saturdays. Right. But a uh, lot of stuff in the news. For sure. The first thing I wanted to bring up is CRISPR. I know we've been talking, we did a full podcast on CRISPR, and we talked a little bit about last week. But on the new news for this week is CRISPR, and uh, scientists have figured out a way to solve hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So this is MYBPC3. Yes. Nice. Practice that a couple times. Rush Mutation. Day. And I got to be honest, the more I looked into this, the more disheartened it I got because... Disheartened Is that a real word, disheartened? I love that. You did it. I because, did it. Tally it. Because that's exactly how I felt. Because... <laughs> This shit is super preliminary, and it's going to be, like, a lot of years before this happens. You get clinical trials, and... But, I got to say, it's don't, cool. CRISPR is doing shit. Don't, don't be depressed. Hey. I mean, here's the thing. Hey. The, the mechanism is there. What's 20 years? What's 100 years? I mean, it depends. Maybe in 20 Just years. It's a good question. You, you might have a problem that they could fix with that. What if we figure out a way to slow down years? Wow. As long as we don't talk about space. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Wouldn't it be amazing if we got Neil deGrasse Tyson in the studio one oh, day? Oh, wow. That'd be phenomenal. It would be, I would be amazed. Because like, first off, I would be like, why? Why are you here? I would Neil? give any percentage of my rights in this podcast to have Neil deGrasse Tyson on the course. But I'll tell you one person we won't be able to get, at least I think for a little while, depending on the sentencing, is um, uh, last year in episode four, we talked about uh, your boy Martin Shkreli, also known as uh, the Pharma Bro, and now self-glossed as Big Rolls. (laughs) Big (laughs) Rolls. So anybody who forgets what we talked about last year was that Martin Shkreli's, uh, he bought uh, the company that made Daraprim, and he jacked up the rate on that like 5,000%. It was an immuno-boosting uh, type of thing for cancer patients and HIV patients, you know, people that kind of needed it. And uh, he, you know, ballyhooed his way through the whole Senate hearings and just made fun of people, and he's... He bought the Wu Tang album that we've never heard. Apparently, yes, he bought all rights to that Wu Tang. Does he have to? Album. If he goes to jail, does he have to forfeit that album? I think he might use that as an ability to not get a raped as he's mm-hmm. going through his prison. Like, hey, if you leave me alone, I will play the Wu Tang album for you because I have it. <laughs> if that 
album comes available, we should start a, uh, what are those called? The GoFundMe Go page for uh, <laughs> American Physio Unfiltered so we can buy that uh, Wu-Tang album. <laughs> but... So the thing is, he's facing up to 20 years. I don't think he'll get that because... He's actually going to go to jail? Um, Potentially. Um, you know, white-collar crimes definitely you know, prosecuted a lot different than, uh, you know, if you had actually robbed somebody at gunpoint. And his interesting thing is he lied about investments and how the funds were handled, but his investors actually did make money, which is what he's trying to use as an ability to lower his sentence. But while his lawyers are trying to lower his sentence, he's also putting himself on facebook apparently he has like a live feed yeah when were we warming up here we found the live youtube uh yeah we had somewhere i don't know if he was just revealing documents he's had in the past or something yeah. live. he's it's weird he's got that marshall half stack in the back mm-hmm. of what looks like a very small room mm-hmm. and you know he's a you know he's got the strat in the corner but he's also mm-hmm. got that acoustic setup it's a couple pedals like Nothing impressive. Nah, he's an interesting cat. He but might be the he... guy that covers Wonderwall, though. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'm pretty Wonderwall. sure that's... <laughs> what this if, one's for the ladies what out there. What if we there. could somehow find a way to get Shikrelli, like on well, here, like do well, a little interview or something? No, nah, I mean, it's nice, though. The interesting, because the one part we noted last year was his big move for people that really made him upset was to just, you know, give them money. So like when Bernie Sanders, you know, rapped on him and he oh, didn't yeah. like that, he gave Bernie, he gave him like a million dollars. The high school he dropped out of. <laughs> That's what I was going to bring he up. Gave them a million dollars. Yeah, he like bought the high school. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. but, uh, you know, that was a, that was a new story today is that dropped today. And then the other one that uh, there was a couple that came out. We well, liked, I, I wanted to bring up that CTE study yeah, that, that, one. We, that we found. Well, what was that about? So that was the one. And, of course, um, TJ works with um, you know uh, people with TBIs a little bit more than we do. Yeah, he works with brain people. Fair amount of concussions. Yeah. So all of your patients have brains. I think so. Yes. Yeah. Most of – all of ours. All of ours. That's good. It's a not, high percentage. Not all of my colleagues have brains. <laughs> so Matt won't be here next week. Um, he's taking a leave of absence, I think. Even Bruce has a brain. It's just a dog brain. Yes, my baby Bruce is here with us today in the studio. He's our fifth member of the yeah. group. Yeah, we got number six. He's a lone fruit fly <laughs> with us today. He's out. No, but this, this so this study, it's it, it came out recently. It's through Boston University, and it just examined the brains of uh, post-football players. Um, the initial study had 202 players in it. Uh, 111 of which were former NFL players. And the kind of headline clickbait title was that 110 of the 111 had chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Is it was that The one I saw was that 99.9% of NFL players have CTE. Oh, my God. <laughs> Everyone who plays football is going to get CTE. That's, how they, that's exactly how they worded it. The one that mm-hmm. I saw, I was like, Oh my, 99%. You know, first off. Why would you play football if you're going to get CTE? Well, the thing is, first off, you have to, it's a post-mortem diagnosis. So I'm like, wait a minute. Everybody in the NFL just died? How'd they figure this out? Because that's, that's not true. And, uh, you know, I, when you look back at that study, it was what, 111 people who had exhibited signs and symptoms consistent with CTE. Right. So there was a reason they were put into the study. Yes. It wasn't just. It, was, it wasn't a random was, sample. Yeah, they didn't come into our clinic and take half the people and get half NFL players. It was right. just 
everybody played football and they were showing signs and symptoms of CTE. Right. So I hate to get all conspiracy conspiracy theory, but on you're you gonna. Guys. But you're gonna. But it, <laughs> why not print a study from Boston University that says ninety nine percent of football players get CTE? You know why? Why not make the headlines? Why not put it in every household's brain that if you play football, you have a chance of getting CTE? You know, when I first read why this, why not? Why not? Because. You know, it is, a, it is a serious issue, and I hate to make light of this story, even though, like, the facts and kind of the way the study was done is kind of bullshit, because if I if I have a kid, if I have a son, you know, I would think long and hard about if I would let my son play football, and this is coming from a high school quarterback. You're not going to let Bruce play football? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and when I saw this study and when we were all talking about it, it's, it, it's a little bit laughable about how they sensen- sensationalized like the headlines and, and the results and all that. But it makes sense. Why not? You know, sometimes we, we've been poo-pooing this shit for like 30 years. You know, the, the NFL has been trying to cover up CT and head, head injuries for many years. So why not a, a professor from Boston University make a study that hits every headline and every household hits. It, it makes sense to me. Well, and the big thing with it is is the fact that because all of the people that were in the study or all the brains that were in the study, I should say, they weren't people really anymore, um, it, it would be similar to you know every single person whose arm didn't work and had severe bruising and looked like it wasn't even in a line anymore you know, and complained we mm-hmm. thought they had a broken arm. We, in fact, x-rayed them and found out that they all had broken arms, all except mm-hmm. one who just had a real funky-looking arm. Because that's kind of what that study ended up being was um, you, you have to take that part into it. Obviously, though, the fact that 111 individuals who had those signs and symptoms showed that and then were shown to have that chronic traumatic encephalopathy – it's significant from the standpoint that it's worth noting and taking into consideration. However, the data that they used and the way that the media portrayed it probably wasn't helping to show the science side of it. Right. And I guess if we can get a takeaway from it is that there's probably going to be more funding into research about CTE and how to prevent it and what we should do about head trauma because it's obviously a real issue. And this just throws more confirmation into the bag that I think we all knew that you have a risk of head injury if you play football. If you have Khalil Mack running at you, you might get uh, your head might hurt at yeah. some point. I mean, if you if you had a hundred soccer balls a day at practice, you might run into CTE. Also um, confirmed. You know, if you take a hundred punches mm-hmm. at boxing or uh, MMA practice, you're going to have some issues. <laughs> right, and if nothing else, this brings more attention to people. Because I got to say, in 2007, last year, you know, I was playing high school football. We weren't thinking about any head injuries or things like this. And now, ten years later, if nothing else, this is putting more information in parents' minds and coaches' minds, and we need to be cognizant of head injuries. And uh, yeah. Take care of your brain. For sure, growing up, even growing up, I feel like it wasn't as, as far along as it is now. I'm, I'm sure I had tons of concussions, and I only have one diagnosed one, like the day before a final exam in DPT school. Mm-hmm. That was a fun day. You got to be kidding me. Start <laughs> behind that. Oh, I you know, just played hockey, got a concussion, came in, took an exam, felt weird, 
did well on the exam for some reason. Probably because I was just in a great mood. I couldn't like feel things. Was it Sean's exam? <laughs> no, 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 oh no, 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 for Sony. <laughs> <laughs> but that was only one instance, and, and there's so many times I probably had a concussion growing up. And now, hopefully, from this study and several others, there starts to get research out there of how to prevent and how to um, actually deal with these injuries properly. Right. And if nothing else, we can all be cognizant and thinking about this as we, you know, introduce our kids to sports, as we coach sports, We just, just to have knowledge about what's going on and whatnot. But, all right, let's change the subject here. I want to talk about this opioid study. That was a big... What a transition that was. I'm it was a big... <laughs> and we're back. <laughs> well, the thing is, if, if you were to look at the news cycle this week and you look at the me- you know newsworthy medical stories that popped in, this was a huge oh. one. And it was essentially... Our, our I just leg- thought of a good transition. It's, with- it's like, oh, so speaking of treatments, <laughs> oh my <God>. opioids. <laughs> Let's take a guess. In 2015, how many Americans do you guys think took opioids wait first how first off how many americans are there let me give you guys a reference uh, americans you just hear the typing in america america <laughs> american just go with 300 million is the google search is that we're, we're at like 300 million right i feel like i've heard that before we're, we're over 300 million but i think it's 340 all right it's at yeah. least like a, a it's that, at least 300. That makes sense with the stat that I got here. All right, how many Americans do you guys think uh were prescribed or had an opioid from either a family member, a friend or how many Americans had an opioid in 2015? It's pretty much what it's saying. 90 million. Let's remember there's that's, 300 That's too high. Million. There's 300 million Americans. 100 million. It's my guess. You can't. 100 million is super close, but on Price's Right rules, you would also not win because you went over. Uh, 91.8 million Americans in 2015 were prescribed or at least took opioid medication for pain in 2015. Of those 91.8 million, 5% were noted to have taken it without a prescription, which of course would be problematic. Um, most of those people, however, noted they got those pills from friends or family. Uh, and then, of course, the other the part that ties in is now opioid overdoses because what happens is you start with Oxycontin or you start with Vicodin. Um, once you get cut off on that, since it's in the same family, it does tend in you can fix that that high or that addiction with heroin, which you know in some cases ends up being a little bit cheaper. Um, and now opiate over to overdoses ends up becoming one of the, one of the leading causes for deaths in Americans that are white between like 18 and 40 years old in America. So it's becoming an interesting and epidemic is the label that has been for attached sure. to it. And I got to say, this subject is personal to me because I've had two close friends, you know, go through the exact hierarchy of the exact steps that Dr. Reister, Reister just mentioned. You get prescribed the opioids and then, you know, for an injury, for a surgery, you know, for something minor as a, you know, high school participant. And then those opioids, when they get discontinued by the physician, that addiction turns into, 
you know, how do I, how do I get that same high? You know, they're so addicting that, you know, for two of my friends, this opioid prescription from a physician turned into heroin abuse. And uh, I'm happy to say for both of those friends, they've been through, you know, detox and through the rehabilitation stages and, and both are clean off heroin. But in both cases, a prescription for pain for one was a surgery, one was, you know, shoulder pain from athletics, you know, oh, and, I mean, you remember we, um, yeah, Sonricker went with me when I got my Achilles taken care of back in 2013. You know, drove in and watched the surgery. That was a pretty fun day. That was, that was very fun. <laughs> Especially when they were like taking me off the table and my arm was like all torqued up. And, <laughs> yeah, right. And then I was, uh, I was in the recovery room screaming that I was blind. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and he made fun of me for it for like a while. But mm. we go, we go to the, we, we go to Walgreens and we get the, it's, uh, true. it's all true. We get the lower tab, you know, bottle. And, um, you know, it's, I mean, it's just, you know, they just cut into your leg and they sewed some stuff together and they put you in a cast. And the, remember the pill, dude? 90 pills. I was like, holy crap, is it going to hurt the, for this long? Like, legit, how bad is this going to be? And, I mean, it wasn't that bad. I think I took my uh, my tabs for like two or three days and then I was fine. Right. You know, so then what do you do with the other like 80 freaking pills? Like maybe maybe a week prescription of seven pills would have done the trick. Yeah, and you know, maybe just suck it up, buttercup, you know. It's going to hurt and just, you know, chill out. Like have a scotch or something. Like, <laughs> Elevate oh. your leg. <laughs> yes. Or how about in the future? Maybe we'll we'll come up with something that's like natural, like like maybe something similar to like a, a THC substance that um, we can give people that's like a natural um, pain reliever that than a, an opioid mimicker. You know. Yeah. Well, and the, TJ, the- you're the you're the neuro guy. What? How does that work? What? It, what is like the analgesic? opioids like why do people get addicted to opioids i couldn't tell you the neuroscience behind it i think that the fact that it's it's the strongest pain reliever that they can access is what makes it so addicting i mean yeah it works on the the parts of the brain that that are perception of pain so it's not so much that it kills pain but it takes um your threat level of it down does it does it block the receptors Mm -hmm. that the pain signals would be firing um don't you guys remember that descending analgesic well, they released, system? They release dopamine, which yes. like pretty much makes you feel good. Yes. So why? I mean, it's it's pretty easy to think about. Like, why would you want to stop feeling good? It's not a blocker, <laughs> you know. It it just it it releases this hormone that makes you feel positive effects from it. But there's also a reason that I mean, Purdue Pharma, which was one of the ones that worked at like OxyContin, so they created it. And their internal corporate memos, you know, indicated that they knew long before this became an epidemic, you know, which remember, you know, definition of epidemic, like 15 cases per 100,000, right? Mm-hmm. So they knew this was going to be a problem a long time ago. And they settled, you know, in a huge loss. Basically, um, they were being prosecuted by, by the United States, um, FDA, uh, FTC, and it was like 600, over $600 million settlement. So it didn't really go, you know, it didn't like, there was no verdict on it. They settled. Um, so they, they knew all the time that this was going to be a problem and because physicians had noted it earlier. 
What the hell? It was the fruit fly. I went <laughs> to swipe at the fruit fly. <laughs> I've been and swiping at like, fruit fly with the fruit fly right now. And I, I hit the wire that hit the mic, and then I'm, and then Baker gives me the glare like, dude, why did you do that? <laughs> Literally, there's been a fruit fly just causing chaos yeah, yeah. to this podcast. <laughs> I <laughs> saved Matt <laughs> already once. <laughs> I can't guarantee any further. Oh, I know Dr. Reister was on a rampage there, but I got to admit, in this past week, this whole opioid uh, article just got me loose and and i've been doing a lot of research and i want to look at both sides and you know especially with this fake news stuff it it's really been make me making me wonder like what's real and what's not real and it's really hard for me to believe anything but the more i i look into it you know we have really tightened up our prescribing of opioids and and how that's going on but in that same sense as as x access is tightened up to opioids by you know limiting physician physician prescriptions thing and things like that that also has been a predictor of turning kids to the streets and heroin because now that we've gotten our kids and a lot of the community addicted to opioids if we shut off access to opioids which i think we've all seen us four in this room patients that get shut off from their hydrocodone or oxycontin you know that that you know matters and that goes back to doctors and and patients do kind of predict how doctors prescribe their drugs well, you the know, that, that is an aspect of it well before you you know like news or whatever there's there's no fake news involved with the death toll so at this point in time the reason why this has become a much bigger story and the reason it it it's gotten past like how we prescribe or how we use. Um, clearly, the prescription side of it is where a lot of these problems have started. But the death toll numbers have gotten to the point. So in 2016, 65,000 people in America right, died from opioid overdose. Now, that, that as far as when you look at like peak deaths, like the peak deaths for car crashes was 1972. And that was about 50,000. Okay. You know. HIV deaths peaked um, in 1995 around 48, 47,000. Gun deaths in, in America peaked in 1993 at around 40,000. All right. So you see how this number has gotten to the point where it is ridiculous and it is unavoidable. And when you talk about fake news or things like that, more than likely is this number, this number didn't go from like a couple of thousand just two years ago to 65,000 last year. Two years ago, it was 47,000. Exactly. It didn't climb. It didn't just jump this year. However, keep in mind the same company, the same company's a sponsor, the one minute ads that run on NBC News or CBS News or ABC News. I don't, if you watch the news, listen, you can't avoid seeing some prescription for something. Matter of fact, one of the big ones that was kind of amusing was, Remember we talked about opioid induced constipation? <laughs> yeah. Right. So you can't poop because you're taking opioids. Now this was two years ago. This was a huge one, right? You know? It was on every football game I every... watched. <laughs> oh my God. That's something that lit my hair on like, fire. So last you year. can't your ability to take a shit has been compromised. Yes. So don't get off the paint, pill. take another right. pill. Don't get off your hydrocodone. I think I quoted this a year from like today was yes. don't get off your hydrocodone or your oxycodone. Take, keep taking that. Take another pill. 
to get off your constipation. I mean, it's it's. And then when that causes heart palpitations, we got another pill. Right, right. Don't worry about it. It's the brotherhood, the big pharma brotherhood. And then when that causes polyneuropathy and you can't feel your feet, we got a lyrical. Sure, we got something to treat that. Something you know, it's just it's just an ongoing. And and it's not. We don't want to talk about conspiracies, but it's not beyond the realm of possibility that a few years ago, when that when someone wanted to run a story on opioid deaths in America and where this stuff has started that potentially one of the bigger sponsors for the newscast was like, listen, we saw how you ran that story, you know, last week, Wednesday on like how our drug was killing people. We would like it if you'd not run another story like that in the next year. And these are the ads we'd like to run. I mean, it's not ridiculous to think that that could have happened. I'm not saying it did, but I'm, I'm saying it's not ridiculous to think that that didn't happen. Not at all. And just to drop a couple more numbers before we move on, a couple of the research things I did from the uh, NIDA, which is the National Institute of Drug Abuse, is quoted as treatment of dr- treatment of pain is at the root of this opioid problem. Better prevention and treatment of underlying disorders are necessary to decrease pain and mortality associated with opioid abuse. Seventy-eight Americans die daily of opioids to put it to put it in perspective 9-11 this is oh, like you're going governor chris christie on me right now yes yes <sighs> i'm going governor chris christie because he is the head of the national institute of drug abuse did you know that oh my god uh, no i did not know that i knew it was ahead of something so 78 americans die daily of opioid abuse and in terms of 9-11 this is uh 9-11 happening every three weeks and that that, that number may only get worse every too. three weeks as many people die For from opioids than died at 9-11 think of it this way i probably see like 60 patients a week so everybody that i saw this week gone and you're right, it's a Chris Christie stat. Oh, yeah. So, I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, he quoted the numbers right, correctly at least. But then, so, then to take another part of this is that people start to look for, um, how can I get this feeling more? How can I have more of an effect? And how can drug deal, like people that are selling these, like not legally, how can I make more of a profit? And then they start to turn to, synthetics and things like that and that's where fentanyl comes into play and that's been a big Mm. issue over the past two years i think it's been in the in the news one or two years um which is extreme way more potent and if you if you look at a study it's like if you have a jar next to each other and you have like a normal opioid and then the synthetic it's literally like four grains of salt has the same effect as this like eighth full jar of a normal opioid. So you can easily take way too much, way too much. In the ha- and and that's why there's been so many overdoses, I think, in the past year or two. I'm taking fentanyl off my bucket list. That's a great point. That is a great point. And as I flip my page here, between 1999 and 2017, the opioid abuse has quadrupled. And studies have shown the prescriptions of opioids has also quadruple, which was in a couple of studies. So interesting. As we prescribe four times the amount of medication, the opioid abuse also transpires to this goddamn fruit fly. Well, when they bro- they broke from the story, they broke from the story. I was thinking of that Tuesday or Wednesday, mm-hmm. and Lester Holt goes to you know 
the the new you know John Torres the, who's their new medical mm-hmm. guy. It's not you know Nancy Snyderman's gone. Damn it, Nancy. I know I miss her too. She was pretty she cool. Too. She was awesome. Yeah, but anyways, he starts talking. He goes and clearly there are other alternatives we need to look at first, like physical therapy or massage therapy. He, and I was so excited because he said physical therapy. I'm like, yes. I looked at my wife. I go, yes. Look, he said it. But then he lumped it. He lumped it with <laughs> massage therapy, like it's the same thing. And yeah. it's, and you know massage therapy is awesome too. I mean, however, um. I mean, but what's our takeaway from that? You know, like we have to find ways to make people feel good that won't kill them. Yeah. And I mean, as far as our profession goes, we we kind of, you know, there's obviously an opportunity because um, we don't have the ability or the desire to prescribe medications. And so if you end up going to a physical therapist first, clearly there's one route we're going to take you. I mean, we could send you to a physician to manage pain, but more importantly, the thing to understand is, and, uh, is that pain is actually part of a healthy nervous system. You know, you wouldn't want to turn that off necessarily. Uh, That's not the route currently being taken. Exactly. And and a lot, when I I was doing a lot of research on this uh, subject and opioids in in our nation, a a lot of the uh, left view, personally, I, I don't like the whole team atmosphere where, you know, you're either a Republican or a Democrat. And, and I personally, I don't want to be affiliated with either group because I hate this team aspect. But but as I, uh, and we'll get into that, I think, in more podcasts. But as I research this more, you know, a lot of the left view, a lot of the Democratic view is, you know, Christine Trump are really dragging their feet on this issue when they're not doing anything about the opioid epidemic. But when I looked more into it, a lot of it was because of the the delay due to this health care bill and the whole repeal, replace Obamacare. And and as more I read and more I indulged into this uh, subject, it brought me back to, you know, we have to all play for the same team. Like, I, I hate how as we're going on from, you know, before the election to after the election, it's like this team versus this team, Republicans versus Democrats versus Democrats, and if we don't allow people to either make decisions or move forward on things, either repeal or, you know, just make a decision in general, you know, it's not going to let us go forward on different issues. And that's what I read when when I was uh, researching this is like we can't do anything because, you know, the Congress and Trump and, and everyone is trying to do bigger things with the health care bill. So it's like if we don't work together to accomplish bigger things, we're never going to get to solutions for the opioid epidemic. The, the big thing, though, to keep in mind, though, with respect to this is is the fact that uh, politics, you still can't get away from race and politics. I mean, there there is a huge component to it. And the one thing that is very out front on this entire opioid epidemic is it is primarily – a white issue. There you go. <laughs> I mean, it's, I, it is, it is, I mean, race and politics go together. What makes you say that? The numbers. It doesn't bear out. It's not the same as like other things. When crack cocaine became a problem, you know, in the eighties in the late eighties, it was primarily a black America problem. It wasn't a white America problem. Uh, the opiate epidemic actually is statistically more slanted towards white America. It's it's not an opinion. And, and you know, I, I oh, heroin pudding. <laughs> and I, I'll take Doctor Easter's word for it that, that that's what is affecting. But in in my personal life, 
I've seen it, you know, as a graduate of Chituaga Central but High I, School. I've seen it in African Americans. I've seen it in Caucasians. I've seen it in everything. As soon as you get prescribed, I've seen it in two of my best friends. As soon as you get prescribed that person, uh, what's it? What the f is that pink pill called? Per Percocet. As soon as you get prescribed that Percocet, it it gets turned. It gets turned into something way, way more. It gets turned into, like, I need that to play baseball. I need that to get up in the morning. I need that to go to school. And it turns into heroin because that Percocet gets cut off. And that heroin turns into fentanyl. Well, the and part that turns shown, into death. The part you've shown is it's an emotional issue. And here's the thing. I mean, even when you look at a news story and you see that they're, you know, they're they're showing on the on the the headlines a car on the side of the road and both of the parents have passed away from an opioid overdose and there's three kids in the back seat, you know, crying when they get there. So obviously it's a huge emotional issue. Um, and when we look at how did how did this stuff start and whose pockets got padded on it, you know, um, which direction can we take it and how can we fix it? And in the in the whole part of how do we fix this problem what will be our obstacles to fixing it and who would like to not see it fixed i mean so those will be the things that we'll have to try and figure out as we go forward um what's a better way to do it i mean once people are addicted you know the, the whole how do we fix it from a legality standpoint right. or things like that are complicated how you take care of addiction in, a, in an individual and, and how does greed factor into the whole situation and how does greed factor into any situation? I mean, so those will be the things we'll be looking at for sure. Um, however, it's also an opportunity to politicize something. So if you want to push through a health care act and you want to try and make it seem like, you know, we're trying to get this thing done for the opioid epidemic and to take care of people. You know, is that really the reason you're trying to get this done? You know, who's going to hang on that? And as this story grows and becomes bigger, because it's not going away yet. I mean, those numbers keep going up and up and up. And there is no plan. Right. Currently, there's news articles about it. There's people talking about plans or trying to throw funding at things like that. But addiction is a problem. Mm -hmm. And when that when that goes in that direction and where do we you know, we still keep prescribing them, we still keep manufacturing them and it still becomes one of the frontline problems with medicine and how that works. So you, know, you come in with a problem, we take care of the pain and then we move things on, you know. Right. So the solution is not there yet, even if someone says they have it. Likely not. And I think we've identified that the solution is not arresting our people and, and throwing them in jail for this. And, you know, just my opinion, and this is how I th see things, and I want to share this metaphor with you guys because I shared it with my colleagues and my friends, and I think it's cool, even if nobody else thinks it's cool. You know, healthcare industry or trying to shape things or in my personal opinion one thing that really should you know turn around is the use of uh, medical marijuana so so let's think about medical marijuana in this situation or just turn the whole scope of of healthcare i think of it as this big huge battleship right so we got this huge battleship on the ocean We've got a or battleship. something. We have this huge battleship, and let's say, like you know, we realize medical marijuana is beneficial for us, or we realize, you know, that running healthcare uh, system is is very beneficial, and we know that. In order to turn that battleship around, in order to get it 
where we wanted to do. It takes a long, long time to get that battleship to turn, to get that to move. It takes so many experts, dude, so many professors. Have you to seen? To start to get that. Baker, get this on video. So start Son- to get it. <laughs> the imagery is outstanding right now. And we need more and more. And the people that try to turn the boat back are the people who are making money by the the old industries. Big and, Pharma. And, Right, and and who don't want to see things change. In order to get that battleship to move, we need more and more and more people trying to turn that wheel, turn that wheel, because there's going to be a ton of money on the other side trying to turn that wheel back. Don't let it turn. Don't let it turn. And this is how we get to where we want to be is when we have more and more people fighting to get that battleship to turn around and get back to where it is. And that's how I view, you know, medical marijuana or, you know, big pharma or any changes we want to make. It's not going to happen overnight. But when we keep fighting and there's more voices and there's more people to keep turning that wheel back where we want it to be, that's how we finally get there. It doesn't happen in one year. It doesn't happen in five years. It probably happens in 20 years probably happens in 50 years but the more people we get to keep turning that we can't give up we got to keep fighting for what we think is right and what way we want to turn that so you wheel. hang on to that you hang on to that steering wheel until everyone can get as high what as way want. do you want to turn that wheel i am so inspired right now what I way do you want to so turn I, that wheel so i think it's obvious that dr matt still cares and i think that can lead us into our in our final segment about people who still care. People who still care, and we and clearly, and the cool thing is, Matt cares. He cares a ton. It cares a ton, maybe too much. However, with respect to the um, one of the things that we try to talk about in the in the final segment is different things that we need to bring. You know, whether it's uh, you know with our patients or in our life, and one of the one of the aspects people talk about, especially in healthcare, is compassion. And compassion, we've been talking about a little bit with our group um, and what are the components to it. Sonic, are you still with us? Son- he's, 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 he is spent. Man. He got so, so emotional so on that, that thing. He walked that, away. The I, video from that last segment that he just had is going to be posted, and I think that's going to be our teaser for the podcast. You are you not allowed to like just turn your mic off and walk away. It's not cool. You did talk too much, but you can't turn your mic off, man. <laughs> give him, give him his. Uh, he's got to collect his thoughts. He's got to. He's got to reel it back in. It's nine forty-six. He's got to go. He's got to go. We still got to get our picture in. He's got to go do some push-ups or something, man. <laughs> get this figured out, Sunwrecker. But no, one of the big things with compassion is, I mean, there's a couple. There's more than just. You have to have empathy. So the ability to try to understand. Um, or, someone else's situation uh and one of the things i didn't really understand as far as compassion went beforehand is that you also have to have have a clean slate with yourself if you don't have uh, if you haven't forgiven yourself for past transgressions or um you know if you if you still have like judgment on different things like your own flaws or things you've done wrong or maybe like in a, a situation that would require compassion how you didn't handle yourself well um if you haven't kind of forgiven yourself for that and cleared that slate, that makes it difficult for you to be compassionate and to care for others. So it is important for all of us, especially those of us who are really involved in caring for people where compassion is a big deal. I mean, service to others, and we've talked about it before, 
But having a, a service to others mentality means you have to believe in abundance, right? You have to believe there's enough for all of us, um, which gets you to a point where, you know, you, you are generous, you know, because generosity is not just money. It's sometimes it's, it's our, our time. It's our care factor. And then it's also to be compassionate. And that compassionate key is, here's the thing, giving yourself your own clean slate as you go forward, whether you're working with patients every day or whoever you work with or who you see on the street, but forgiving yourself for different things that you might be harboring is an important factor of compassion. And sometimes when people can't forgive themselves or acknowledge their, you know, their flaws or things where they've went wrong, you know, if you don't acknowledge it and you pretend it's not there, you can't forgive yourself for it. And that's an important aspect. And a lot of what I say in this podcast is is opinionated, but one word that Dr. Reister didn't use when uh, he was talking about compassion is integrity. Integrity. In- integrity. Integrity. Yeah, integrity. integrity. Dodge intrepid? No, no. Yeah. Integrity. Which would be important because hull integrity on that battleship you were steering would be very important. <sighs> Paramount. And this is a word that I didn't understand till about a month or a month, you know, a month and a half ago. And integrity is doing what you think, what you say, and what you do. So what you think, what you say, what you do. Are all in line. Shout out to Adam Palumbo. That's right. And a lot of that comes from, I think, self-reflection. So you can say you're compassionate. You can say you, you think about what you do. But a lot of it comes from after your day. You kind of think about the choices you made, if you acted in the best way. And I think that really makes you more compassionate is when you think right. about the actions you've taken. And then and it's not just passive. You think about, oh, what could I have done better? How could, right. for me, it's like, how could I have seen another patient today? Could I have done a different technique? Could I have researched more about this injury before I saw them? And I think a lot of, and, and that's integrity. In, in my definition of the word. And I know we went deep here, but at the end of the day, Super life, deep. life is that. about having fun, right? Let's have some fun. I love having fun, man. Have fun every day. I just have fun with this. Party at my Play house like tomorrow. a champion. Can we shut the mics off? Have fun. Let's Eat have another knees. beer. Woo! <laughs> I just want to say Opidemic. Hashtag Opidemic. Opidemic. Is anybody else on board oh. with that? Damn, you guys got so deep. You got deep, man. You were riding a ship. You were steering a ship for like three full minutes. I know. It's hard to steer that ship, Baker. That's why I turned the mic off. I felt like I was talking too much. I appreciate it because I think you were trying to do a mic drop, but you didn't actually drop the mic. Let's get a let's get a dead mic to just drop. At no, one don't drop it. He, all he did was do a switch. Yeah, or get you sad. Do you like my colors? Do you like my colors?